You're listening to Spice Radio's The Morning Buzz, and we are speaking to Charlie Smith, the editor of the Georgia Strait. Charlie, how are you this morning? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks, Man Karen. How are you doing? Doing very well. They say it's going to be another hot weekend, so I've got to get my AC up and running in all my fans. Do you have AC, Charlie? No, but we bought this. <laughs> in monstrously large industrial fan from London Drugs, which has helped get us through this. Okay, well, it's better to have something than nothing at all. So, yeah, let's hope we can get through another hot one this weekend. But going to some of the stories here, Charlie, now there was one that I really want to talk about because it led to a whole lot of conversation, and it was that couple on the island that posted an ad to find a family doctor because that's what they needed to do. They were struggling to go and get a doctor, so they put an ad out there. Eventually, one doctor did respond and say, they would help them out but what does that say in terms of just the state of like our healthcare system and that access to a family doctor well it's 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 a very vivid example of a situation where more than a million british columbians don't have access to a you know a regular family doctor and and the problem is the um walk-in clinics, some of them have been closing, particularly in Victoria, and it was interesting that this was a Victoria story, and the woman, Janet Mort, who's actually an Order of BC recipient, and there are only 469 of them in the province, um, including beloved Shushma, and, <laughs> and so, so she put an ad um, saying that she needed to get her husband's prescriptions filled, in the Times Colonist was where the ad was, and he's 82 years old. And she stated that we will agree to any reasonable fee. Her doctor, the family doctor, had retired at Christmas. Um, they couldn't get anything through the Telus My Health My Care uh, system. Um, no virtual doctor appointments, and uh, it was a. a you know, I think it caught the attention of the entire province, and uh, eventually, um, that it sounds like uh, there are appointments available. Is what Telus Health has has said that they were working um, to try to to fix the situation. So I think sometimes when you have issues like this and you and it's in the media, there's a quick resolution, but it doesn't cover uh, paper over the the deeper problem of many other people being in a similar situation. And then, um, yeah, no, go ahead, Charlie. Well, one of the things that was raised on social media that I was noticing is people were saying, well, why do you always have, if, you're, if you have a chronic disease, um, let's say high blood pressure, for instance, and you need your blood pressure medication refilled every three months, uh, why, in cases like that, do you have to visit a doctor? And is it feasible that um, just to, to free up some, some doctor's time, is it feasible that pharmacists can refill these prescriptions that have been going on for years that, that don't change? And I know the College of Physicians and Surgeons would probably have a big problem with that because they think doctors should be um, overseeing prescribing and they uh, bristle anytime there's talk of... Uh, anyone other than doctors doing prescribing. But in this situation where we're at in BC right now, I think we, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the new, new premier, who will be David Eby, revisits some of these kind of old tried and true approaches. And um, because in other countries, uh, India, for example, 
you can get a prescription um, and you don't have to be a doctor. So, uh, like, you can get access to prescription medications. So um, there are risks that can come with that, so it's something that would have to be thought out, but, but something needs to be done. Oh, it really does, Charlie. And even kind of sort of connected to this, too, is we're hearing also so many stories about just these, in, especially in interior BC, in the rural areas where the emergency like centers, they have to close at 6 p.m. or something, and then people have to go to another hospital for emergency. I mean, it's like, it's crazy to me that this is even happening, but we also know that rural health, this has also been another area where they've had always a lot of issues when it comes to staff shortages, and do you think so much of this is to do with the pandemic? Yeah, and, and there's it's, it's so complicated, too, because you've got... On the nursing side, in particular, an aging workforce and um, people—it's uh, very hard to uh, replace the lost nurses. Like in Ontario, uh, the union is saying there's a shortage of thirty thousand nurses in Ontario alone, um, and uh, that hospitals are short of nurses. Um, there's nurses that are required in community care, and I, I know BC is really tried to expand nursing education in recent years, but this is a problem. And then the other issue is uh, physicians, that um, one of the challenges is uh, there aren't enough of them, given how many patients they can handle. Uh, We haven't seen a growth of physician numbers anywhere near what we've seen in terms of the growth of the population, plus we're getting the aging of the population. is very complicated. And then you've also, you throw in COVID, as you said, Ben Karen, and what happens there is it increases the caseload. And the other thing with COVID, which isn't talked so much in the context of this situation, but um, longer COVID, long COVID, has all sorts of ramifications. And, and the virus itself, it's not just a respiratory illness. It presents first as a respiratory problem. Um, but in some cases, and not all, it can lead to, it's a vascular disease that can lead to uh, heart problems. It can lead to brain injuries. So we don't know how much of the demand of, that's being placed on our healthcare system right now is attributable to COVID. It's more than, than just simply you know, the, the numbers that we have in intensive care that are released by the BC Centre for Disease Control because there are much longer-term ram, ramifications and, and the more often you're infected, uh, the less uh, your immune system is able to resist some of these complications. And Charlie, on the show, I've been talking about how a lot of uh, immigrant talent that we have in the medical field are not being utilized the way they should. And uh, just yesterday, Ontario's health minister has directed that the regulatory colleges for nurses and doctors develop plans to quickly register internationally educated professionals so that we get more nurses, we get more doctors on ground because we are all facing. We don't have a family doctor. Our emergency rooms are closing down. Uh, you know, we're we're putting out ads for a doctor, so th- we are in a you know very critical situation. And uh, during the show, I've always propagated that we have the talent, but just the regulatory rules and what they need to do kind of just puts them out of the race. Yeah, this is a big problem, Natasha, and the uh, it's you know some look upon these professional licensing bodies as cartels in that they. 
uh, can restrict access to, to professions. Um, obviously, you want people who are trained to a certain standard, but you know the Indian medical system, for instance, is, is outstanding. The, the Indian doctors are among the very best in the world. And um, it's, it's, it's very onerous to get licensing uh, when you immigrate to another country in a, in a whole range of professions. And part of the problem is, you, you know, Canada's one of the most decentralized federations in the world. So we have the federal government setting immigration policy and, for good reason, trying to attract large numbers of immigrants um, to meet our economic needs and to ensure that we don't um, go down the road of Japan, where they had a major economic contraction with an aging population. But at the same time, it's the provinces that have authority over health care and education and all these areas, and the licensing of doctors and the licensing of nurses and the licensing of physiotherapists and all these other health care professions has been basically, uh, they're, they're self-regulating professions where the legislation passes the authority over to a college of physicians and surgeons or the um, nurses organization or the physiotherapists or the chiropractors and all these things. And so it's so decentralized, it's hard. You know, Ottawa has very little say over all of this. And the province, I know Adrian Dix was announcing um, a way to introduce, uh, open up access to... Um, nurses who were trained in other other countries to get into our nursing system, but it's still just a, a drop in the bucket in terms of the magnitude of the challenges we face, and and I think you're, you're exactly right, but I heard discussions about this even 20 years ago on politicians when Kennedy Stewart was running for parliament against Hedy Fry back in 2004. Um, Hedy Fry was talking about all these things that needed to be done for foreign credentials, and and we're still not there two decades later. And I've heard stories, and I'm sure you have, where doctors from other countries have come here and have taken other professions, from selling yeah. cars to riding or driving cabs. Yeah, and, and working in restaurants and all of that. It is, and and some of it is language too. In the case of um, some some doctors are coming from. Uh, let's say a country like Iran or something, and uh, they may not have the language skills. Um, I have a friend whose mother uh, was medically trained and went through precisely this and uh, had all sorts of ideas how anesthesiologists could be redeployed more effectively in Canada, kind of using the model that's used in, in Iran. But there, was, there wasn't much interest in taking, taking up on this idea. And it really is um, this designation over licensing to these self-regulatory organizations um, that's creating a bit of a bottleneck, and uh, we need to deal with it. You're right, and, and just the fact that it's been going on for so long, even the call for this, it, it really says something. Uh, and Charlie, finally, one more thing I want to talk about with you is, of course, we've got the municipal elections that are coming up, and especially the city of Vancouver. Who is in the lead to be the mayor, and what do you think are going to be some of the top issues? It's a good question. I think, obviously, one of the, the major issues is, 
is housing affordability, but also housing supply in Vancouver. I think um, two of the parties, ABC Vancouver and NPA, are trying to make crime an issue because we see these stranger attacks in, in Vancouver and um, is, is enough being done there and is enough funding going to the police. Um, I think uh, really you've got, uh, there's, there are five candidates that have stepped forward right now. The incumbent, Kennedy Stewart. Uh, Colleen Hardwick, who's with a new party called Team for a Livable Vancouver, and she's a councillor, only woman in the race. Uh, her father was a longtime city councillor. And she's kind of really practicing the politics of nostalgia in a way, and that saying Vancouver is a series of villages, and we, we want the neighborhoods to have control over what happens uh, in terms of the pace of development. So she's more of a, let's, let's not allow so many towers. She's opposed to, only one opposed to the Broadway plan, for instance, which will enable 50,000 more people to live in, in an area from 16th to 2nd and Vine to, um, um, oh, what's the western, or the eastern street is Clark Drive. And so, so she's, you know, could be characterized as more anti-development, has voted against rezonings to add housing units. Mark Marison is at the opposite end in that he's the most bullish for adding housing. He says the, the issue in Vancouver is whether we are a city that welcomes people or whether we're a city that is pulling up the drawbridge. And uh, he thinks we should be a city that's welcoming people. Um, Ken Sim is running for ABC Vancouver. He ran last time and narrowly lost to Kennedy Stewart. In the last election, his housing platform was, I think, a little thin. He basically was proposing to add basement suites to deal with the housing shortage. Um, the fifth candidate is John Cooper of the NPA. He's quite well known. He's been a park commissioner since 2011 and tries to model himself like Philip Owen, who was the long-term mayor of Vancouver, also with the NPA. So we'll see where it goes. I think <laughs> it could turn out to be uh, Colleen Hardwick is doing quite well in a, you know, it's, it's not scientific, one of these online surveys we do on our website. So there is an at there is a part of Vancouver that does not want towers and does not want massive redevelopment. And then other candidates think we need it to accommodate a growing population and, you know, their growing millennial household formation and things like that. Mm, lots to look forward to there. Charlie, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You have a good weekend. Okay, my pleasure. You too. Bye. Bye.